Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. I'm your host, Rebecca Lavoie. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the new six-part series, Bad Sport. And she said, Sally, Sally, you've got to help me. You don't understand. I had to do it. It was a deal with the Russians. Today, we're talking to the director of one of the episodes, Lizzie Kempton. The world of sports and true crime collide in this series, examining the misdeeds of athletes, coaches, officials, and even nations. Episodes include a point-shaving scandal in basketball, a match-fixing case in soccer, an IndyCar drug-smuggling operation, and insurance fraud involving the assassination of a racehorse. On today's podcast, we're talking about the episode Gold War. It looks at the controversy during the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. For decades, the Russians had dominated the sport of pairs figure skating. But that year, the underdog Canadian pair turned in a flawless performance while their Russian competitors stumbled. To the shock of the sporting world, the judges denied the Canadians their gold medal. Then the Olympics was thrown into confusion when the French judge said she was forced to give the gold to Russia. Gold War recalls the score-fixing scandal and looks at the two couples caught in the middle of an international incident. It was all speculation and rumors and it was like massive wildfire. This needs to be sorted out, you know, like if there's something happened in, in with the panel of the judges, it, it definitely needs to be sorted out. The judging appeared to be a return to the Cold War era. Former Eastern Bloc countries voting for the Russians, Western Bloc countries voting for the Canadians. And Lizzie Kempton, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I have to ask, are you a figure skating fan? Uh, big question. Um, uh, do you know, when I started making this documentary, I knew very, very little about figure skating. I'd watched Torvald and Dean when I was young, and I loved Itonia, um, but it was a very, very basic knowledge. It's quite hypnotic, though, isn't it, as a sport? So even if you don't quite know the intricacies of the, the kind of moves and the technicalities of it, it's fantastic to watch. Now, for a lot of reasons, it must be be kind of awkward for athletes and their coaches to talk about events that they won, lost, sort of struggled through all these years ago. Were they reluctant to talk to you about this story? I think they were slightly reluctant. I think there were different reasons for that because it was quite traumatic, I think, in some ways for, you know, obviously the 
it, it, some people might say, oh, you know, they just didn't win a competition, but it's like they were an athlete. And they, you know, for Jamie and David, they dedicated their lives to that point to get to the Olympics. And the aim was to win the gold medal. And I'm sure as any athlete that could potentially go to the Olympics, that must be your lifelong ambition. So to have that kind of taken away from you in that moment, it was quite a brutal time. And I think, you know, they've done so much more in skating and in their lives. And yet this is the story that keeps coming back up. And I think they perhaps felt, gosh, do we not all know this story already? But actually I didn't. And I don't think a lot of people in a kind of non-ice skating fan kind of audience did know about it. Um, for the Russians, I think they were concerned. Um, Tamara Moscovina is amazing, uh, an incredible character and very strong in her opinions. But for Elena, she's quite vulnerable, really, because she'd had the finger pointed so much. And also, you know, in her eyes, I'm a kind of Western filmmaker. So she thinks she's only going to be portrayed in a certain light. And that is, you know, as a villain, basically. Well, you do start the story there, you know, that parallel story of Jamie Soleil's background and, you know, with Elena Berezhnaya's background. What do you want people to understand about the the very different ways that these two women came up, uh, not just in the world of skating, but just in their lives? I think basically the documentary, we were trying to do two things, really. There was, you know, kind of the geo- geopolitical angle, uh, which was looking at the narrative of kind of, you know, Russia against North America on that bigger scale. But I just felt that to keep people watching and engaged and to really care about this story, actually you have to invest in the characters. You really have to. And to understand then where they came from, who they were, how they got onto that Olympic kind of stage effectively. Um, And so it was important for me to tell the parallels of the two female skaters. And in doing so, if you look at kind of how they started off as young children, their backstories in their skating lives really reflect the kind of systems in terms of their approach to sport. For Jamie in Canada, it was very much, you know, a young girl that dreamt in this quite kind of fairy tale way of being a figure skater because it's everything she'd seen on television, the kind of sequins, the glamour, etc. And that, you know, and she had very much a choice and it was a hobby and she took it very seriously, but that's what it was. Whereas for Elena, although, you know, I don't want to you know, take that away from her. Of course, she had a choice. Her family had a choice. But I think it, it reflected a kind of Russian system and that you represent your country and you do, you kind of owe it as a duty to your country. And it's like, it's seen more as perhaps work than a hobby, even as a child. That's what I took from it anyway. Well, there was trauma, too. I mean, she didn't get to choose her partner. She was paired with partners. And her longtime partner, as we saw in your documentary, was abusive, literally abusive. Yeah. she Elena is, you know, I don't know how tall she is, but she's about, I don't know, let's say like five foot. She's small. She's slight. But she is so strong. You know, she is so strong. And she, she's been through such a, a kind of hard time in her life her, her early years you know she was taken away from her mother uh well not taken away from her mother that's too dramatic she moved so far away from her mother as a young girl think how tough that must be and um, without the form of communication we have now and then to be paired exactly as a teenager with a really abusive guy and to go through the trauma of having a skate blade basically reach your brain and to still again overcome that overcome that 
to have that resilience and to be so determined to get back doing the sport that you love and you've worked so hard at. Did you get the sense that Elena's drive in skating? I mean, what did, did you get the sense there was enjoyment there? Because there certainly was duty. There certainly was the sense of her overcoming all these obstacles. Uh, you know, when Jamie and David talk about it, you also see like this love flowing through them. And, you know, maybe because of the story that she's telling, but I I couldn't tell, you know, how much joy and love there was for Elena. And I'm curious, you actually spoke with her. What was your sense of that? Do you know, I didn't, I, I was very aware of this, actually, that I, it may come across that there was so much joy and enjoyment in the North American skating and as in like it was so lovely and enjoyable in the West whereas you know in Russia it was just brutal and it wasn't like that she definitely Elena definitely enjoys the skating she probably has the same passion and Jamie has the same fierce determination that Elena has they're so similar I think it's perhaps a cultural thing as well in the way they talk you know the Russians are very direct and straight to the point which is no bad thing at all. You know, they talk in far more, far more pragmatic ways. And I think the Canadians talk in far more emotive, passionate language, basically. But yeah, I think Elena is as passionate about the sport as Jamie. I just think it comes across in a different way. And I think there's a kind of, for Elena, I think as she went on with her life and got better at skating and kind of proved so much to herself, she kind of felt stronger and more empowered and it just spurred her on even more. I will say uh, Tamara Moscovina, Elena's coach, is one of my favorite interviews in the documentary. <laughs> She's almost like if you could have cast someone to play a Russian skating coach, she is the person you would have picked. We take normal people and make stars out of them. But the Olympics, it's not only competition between skaters, but this is competition between countries. I was curious, did you have to travel to Russia to interview them? Oh my goodness, I wish. I wish. <laughs> that was the plan. So our plan was, yeah, it was to go to Russia to film all the interviews there and then to get some incredible shots, you know, of St. Petersburg and Moscow to really bring the place to life. Um, unfortunately, we ha- because of logistics, quite boring kind of visa reasons, we had to do the interviews in Finland. So we had Tamara and Elena were very kind and they flew over to Finland. That was kind of a midway point between us and Russia. Um, and there was then a plan to go back and film more with them in Russia, but unfortunately COVID hit. Mm. So that stopped that option, which was obviously slightly heartbreaking because I was just so keen to get to Russia to see. The plan was to film Tamara has this incredible house with you know, walls and walls of certificates and trophies. You know, she's one of the best figure skating sports coaches, I should say, in the world. Um, she's an extraordinary woman. And so the aim was to have her interview in front with this backdrop of trophies, but hmm. it, it was not to be. But it's a shame not to have got to Russia because I know, you know, me and the producer, Leah, we were so keen to go. Hmm. Well, the one person we haven't talked about yet is David Pelletier, Jamie's partner. Really interesting figure in this story. At the very beginning, we see him kind of sum up uh, this Western experience of pair skating. He talks about the pair's experience like dating. Pair skating is the same thing as dating. You're together for four years and then it doesn't work anymore. We often sometimes like to 
pretend or fantasize that these these pairs are actually couples, but it's very rare that they actually are. I mean, like Torval and Dean weren't a couple, right? I mean, <laughs> we, we like to pretend they were because they skated so beautifully together. But like in this case, both couples were actually couples. They fell in love. As we see in your documentary, Jamie and David were in love during these Olympics. They later married. Uh, one thing that you don't highlight in the documentary, though, is that Elena and Anton also fell in love as a pair. Can you talk about that? You didn't choose to include it in the documentary. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yes, of course. And that's why it's quite an interesting sport, because it's not, you know, there is emotion in all sport. But in figure skating, because of the closeness of the interaction and often the routines are quite romantic and kind of sensual in a way. I think often, you know, the pairs have to confront if they have feelings for each other, even if it's just temporary and they pass. Obviously, there were some couples that then go on to date. And yes, Anton and Elena were also romantically involved. The reason we decided not to include it was because it felt like for Jamie and David, and their decision to perform to the love story routine at the Olympics, it felt their relationship was part of the narrative that involved, you know, what happened to them in the Olympics and, and why it meant that when the crowd were watching them perform to love story, you know, there was a sense when you, you know, we did kind of research calls with people and there was a real feeling that when watching them, there was this other layer of emotion to it because they were romantically involved and that's what we wanted to get across. It wasn't just to say that they were together to sensationalise a story or anything like that. It very much felt like part of the Olympic narrative. Um, and we did consider, I did talk to Elena about her relationship with Anton. But when it came to the edit, it felt like it just didn't kind of naturally feed in. Mm. And there's a lot that, you know, this, this documentary is... There are a lot of elements of kind of story to it. So, you know, as is always the case, we just had to be selective with the ones that we chose. Mm. I did love, you know, speaking of that aesthetic and the choices that you make in the subjectivity with the scoring of skating, I did love the little passage where they kind of discussed their selection of the love story theme. And they were like, it wasn't cheating. I mean... We were technically in love, and it really does show the the choices, the artistic choices in the sport you can make to, you know, if you think about it, potentially like manipulate the crowd a little bit, manipulate the judges, not manipulate, but sort of put them in a frame of mind, perhaps, to give you that tenth of a point. And that is part of the sport, right? Because it is. Totally. And I didn't know this. This is, when you say, did I know about figure skating? I had no idea that that was the case in choosing the songs that they performed to. I thought, you know, that perhaps all couples had to perform to the same one or, you know, you had to do a performance for the first time, whereas you can reuse old, not old choreography, but the same routine you can perform again. So for both pairs, they were trying to figure out what, you know, which one was best, you know. And for them, they were, for Jamie and David, they were selective and, choosing a routine that would definitely appeal to the North American audience because then obviously the atmosphere in the stadium is better, more positive. It helps them skate. The judges can see that reaction, you know, and it all plays plays into the final score, which is, I, I knew nothing about that. So it is quite interesting. And that's why the coaches, such as Tamara Moscovina, are so incredible because they're not just teaching the the skaters about the technicalities of skating. It's 
you know, it's really having that creative vision behind a routine that will work best in that country in front of that audience. And I was I was trying to be fair because I didn't want the Russian, you know, Samara and Elena to think that the documentary was just going to completely side with the, the North American team. Um, and so, you know, there was manipulation in the way that they kind of chose the best routine to fit the Olympics. And Therefore, it might be a little bit of favoritism or, you know, bias on with the crowd. And I wanted that to be, you know, to be shown in the documentary. Well, for the record, I don't think your documentary sides uh, with one couple or the other, because I found myself feeling a tremendous amount of sympathy for Elena the entire time. This was not her fault. She's a tremendously talented skater. It was not her and Anton's fault. Whatever happened with the judging clearly had nothing to do with them, right? Yeah, completely. I think, you know, I don't think the judging, what happened with the fix and the judging you know, as far as I can tell, had nothing to do with Elena. And what I thought it would be very easy. And I think, as I say, that Elena, I think, thought that, you know, I'm from Britain and therefore I'm just going to naturally side with the Canadian side of the story. And and she's just going to come across as a kind of two-dimensional villain. And actually, this was, a, um, again, this was a woman who worked her entire life to build that, you know, to build the Olympics, to dedicate her life to figure skating. And it was taken away from her as well. And what an awful experience, you know, it was an awful experience for her. That Olympic week was terrible and people were pointing the finger. And imagine, you know, everywhere she went in the days after, people were looking at her as if she'd done something wrong, as if she was involved with the fix. So I really wanted us to kind of get under the skin of how she felt and to kind of feel for her and to have empathy for her as well. Now, of course, we did see in the Elena and Anton performance a couple of those errors, which their coach and Elena <laughs> maybe pushed back on them being errors. I immediately thought, oh, okay, they've made a mistake. It was not a mistake. It was little details. That was a mistake, and it was easily recognizable as a mistake. But aside from Elena and Tamara, does everyone else agree that you speak to that those were errors in that performance? Because we see the judges that you spoke to were, but everyone else that you talked to in the skating world, does everyone unilaterally agree that those were, in fact, mistakes? I think that everybody agrees that there were some small mistakes made. What is different is that there are still a lot of people, and including there was somebody on Twitter the other day saying that actually the Russian routine was more complicated the moves were more technical. Therefore, even with those mistakes, in their eyes, the Russians still should have won. So the debate, it still keeps going, actually. They're just saying it was a more artistic, more interesting routine. Um, overwhelmingly, I think people are, everyone that we've spoken to and you know, doing thorough research into it, are very much on the side that the Canadians should have won. It was flawless. It was actually Jamie and David's best skate of their entire career so it was absolutely perfect but yeah the the debate still goes on which is interesting the skating fans will not let it lie yes of course we see uh the skating judge benoit lavoie no relation to me my name is pronounced lavoie but it's the same last name that the russians was more technically difficult but 
did contain errors, but the Canadians was flawless. And you did choose to show the Canadian routine its entirety uh, in the film, which really does bring home the majesty of the performance. Was there any argument during the editing process whether or not to show so much of that routine in such an uncut way in this documentary? Do you know, it was an, I really enjoyed the edit um, with this one. And Netflix and the amazing execs at Raw um, were just really supportive. And we kind of, it, we were in the edit, we kind of felt our way through those skates, actually. It, we didn't have discussions about should the Russian skate be shorter or anything like that. It was a case of we just put it together. And it was, and when we were cutting the Canadian skate, for me, I was like, we've, you know, we really have to build this moment that for the Canadian team, this is what they've worked their entire lives for. And just we, as an audience, and re- I was really thinking about those people who know nothing about figure skating. We have to play this so people really feel how brilliantly they skated. They're really invested in the skate. Yeah, so for the audience, they just really feel the kind of how incredibly well they skated, but at the end of it, how that was taken away from them. So in order to feel emotionally invested, we were cutting and it's just like, that's just how it got to be, really. We did at one point look at intercutting the interviews more with the skating archive, but it just didn't, it it didn't feel right. It was just like, you know, you really want to be carried away in that moment and taken to another place. And actually quite a few people have commented on David's comments that come into that about how, you know, all the parties he didn't go to, the booze he didn't drink, how it all built that moment. And it really was the kind of pivotal moment it felt in the, you know, the whole film. So, and people felt very emotional when watching it, which was the aim. It really did strike me how Jamie's description of the moment really did feel like an athlete achieving a mark. We hit this one, we hit this one, we hit this one. But then when David talked about it, it was so visceral and so fluid and so poetic and so in the moment. You put the music on, you go into a zone that's very hard to explain. The crowds become blurry. You don't see faces. The smells are stronger. The music plays louder. Did that surprise you to hear him talk about it that way? I think it did, really. Like, I don't... When we were filming it, I don't think I felt it as being kind of as elegantly put as he did it's only when we started editing it and it's like that makes it relatable it's like gosh the dedication that goes into this the sacrifice because that was really important when we started making the film I was like we need to understand what the athletes have sacrificed in their lives before this moment so we can feel the magnitude of that gold medal being you know taken away from them unfairly and at some point, and actually all you needed was those few lines from David to really understand that, for it really to kind of penetrate through. And so one of my guy friends actually <laughs> said the other day, he's like, I, his eyes welled up in that moment. This is a guy who has no interest in figure skating usually. Um, but I think, you know, we've all been there probably, or, ded- you know, you can only imagine dedicating your life to something that much. Um, so yeah, David did an amazing job with that of kind of explaining how it really felt in that moment. Mm. 
All the beers I didn't drink, all the party days I didn't go to, I kept thinking, all the partners I dumped. (laughs) (laughs) All those awkward conversations I've had. (laughs) I think partnerships I've tried to end. But yes, it's, um, I mean, it's such a commitment, isn't it? It's such a commitment and building to that moment. And and I just, you know, I felt it watching it. I was like, they're in that skate, they're having the skate of their lives, everything. It's going absolutely perfectly. So in that moment when they finish, the sheer euphoria, you just want the audience to really feel that with them. Um, and hopefully that did come across because then obviously when it doesn't quite go to, well, it doesn't go to plan and they don't get the gold medal, again, it's kind of that gut-wrenching feeling that the shock, you want the audience to feel just as much as the skaters did in that moment. Well, right after the routine is finished, we hear the commentator on television say the gold is theirs. You know, they've, they've got it. But then we find out, of course, the scores come up and they've been ranked second. And the crowd in the stadium immediately knows there's something wrong. Uh, the reaction to the silver medal is immediate. It's loud. It's vociferous. It's outraged. Do you think the French judge would have spoken up? if the reaction hadn't been so immediate and so strong? It's difficult to know, isn't it? I've thought about this a lot. And Mary Ven, we tried, you know, we tried obviously very hard to get in touch with Mary Ren um, and to communicate with Mary Ren. Leah Nichols did an incredible job um, and we wanted desperately to invite her to be filmed for an interview short schedule meant that was quite difficult and then COVID hit so we just because COVID came along and lockdown we just you know we had to accept that wasn't going to happen you know sometimes in documentaries you keep persevering with the access and you know you can get them further down the line which I think is what we originally we were thinking we could do unfortunately COVID got in the way um Mary Wren you know, she's complicated. On the one hand, some people have said, you know, in a quite straightforward way, she shouldn't have done what she did. She got carried away with perhaps power and money and influence of other people. On the other hand, you know, you feel for her because if she was all bad, I mean, nobody's all bad. That sounds ridiculous. But, you know, it. she admitted to it very, very quickly. So actually she must have felt very uneasy about what she was doing anyway, I think. There must have been a lot of uncertainty in her mind and she must have felt very conflicted. And then, yes, when there was such an outpouring and the booze rang out in the stadium, I can only imagine in that moment how she was feeling. She must have just, you know, she must have felt ready to faint or something because I don't know how you try and keep, you know, so controlled in that situation. Um, And it's interesting because actually... If Anton hadn't made those very small mistakes, because the Russians usually skate perfectly, they could easily have gone on to win the gold medal, even though they still perhaps shouldn't have. But it was just more glaringly obvious, thankfully, that, well, it was just more glaringly obvious because he'd made the mistakes. But yeah, I would I would love to know, I would have loved to have spoken to Marie Wren to understand what was going through her mind when there was such a negative reaction in that arena. <laughs> 
There is a really wonderful moment in the documentary when the media charm offensive is in full effect. Jamie and David are being flown around the country to do interviews. Everyone's making a lot of noise. There's a growing outrage. Uh, They're America's sweethearts all of a sudden, North America's sweethearts and America's sweethearts. And then you just jump to Elena sitting very quietly in her chair. Can you talk about the choice to make that cut and what you were trying to do there? Yes, I thought it was really important to show what both the Russian and Canadian teams were experiencing in the aftermath of the event. So we made a very clear decision to go to that hard cut on Elena after experiencing and feeling the kind of positive and exciting media circus that Jamie and David had had. So then the juxtaposition against Elena, feeling quite isolated and much quieter, um, played really well. And hopefully you felt just how brutal it was, actually, and how tough for them in those days afterwards. Now, Canadians do have this reputation for being very, very polite. Here in the States, we call it Canadian nice. Uh, We do see uh, Jamie and David, and I think especially Jamie, really struggling in some of these interviews to be composed, to not show any signs of resentment or, or hurt, you know, about the result, the second place result. What did you see when you watched these interviews when they were still silver medal did you see signs any signs of resentment anger coming through at all or did you just see canadian nice canadians are very nice aren't they yes, canadians they are. are the nicest most polite group people ever it seems um and i guess for jamie and david they're also aware of being good sports people and you know that is very important to them and i think you know 20s on, it's much easier to be kind of composed and fair and less emotional about it all. However, when you look at the archive from that time, Jamie was inconsolable and upset. And the interviews with David, he was angry. There was definite resentment there. Of course, how could there not be? And that kind of what, and it is just a moment. You can't imagine working your entire life to get a gold medal on the Olympic podium how euphoric that moment must feel and then to know you can't have that to know that's gone you know and waking up in the morning and thinking we didn't have it that one moment's been taken from us you know I felt angry for them and resentful for them so I do think they were very I yeah I do think both Jamie and David were very polite and Canadian and kind of kind about the whole situation but I think deep down they're human and those emotions were still there. Was getting that belated gold medal and sharing the podium with Elena and Anton a satisfying ending for them? Um, I think all four of those athletes handled it as well as they could. Again, as sports people, they were trying to put on the, they were trying to kind of have a dignified end to it all. But I think you can see, and hopefully it comes across when you look at the film, there's no euphoria there. They're quite unhappy. They're, they are quite, they're all quite resentful in that moment. It was an uncomfortable moment, and that's what we wanted to come across. Actually, the moment that they had was taken away. It was a very tough week for both pairs. And then it was quite political, that final moment, with all four of them on the podium waving their gold medals. It felt, I believe, that that was more from a kind of political perhaps PR perspective, well, for everybody else, really, you know, for an audience, we watch it and people who watched it at the time probably thought, oh, there's a happy ending. And that's what we all like, isn't it? We all like the happy ending. But for the four of those, I I think, yeah, it was definitely a difficult moment 
not the happy moment getting a gold medal on the podium should have been. And I hope that comes across. Mm. I mean, I definitely get the sense of how Jamie and David Elena feel about the story and what happened to them in the Olympics. Do you get the sense of how they feel about one another as skaters, as athletes, as people? I think because they did they did go on to skate together in Stars and Ice. And I think as people, they see, you know, as I said, culturally, there's a huge difference between Russia and, and Canada. But as people, I think they have a lot of respect for each other as skaters. You know, that is how I think they they view each other. Um, and they were all at the top of their game. And they saw each other all the time at different events. So actually, they knew each other far better than you maybe realize. Yeah, there's a lot of respect for each other as, as skaters. Right. This was not a Tanya Harding, you know, knee capping incident moment for sure. It, it wasn't. Although, do you know what? I do think actually that the way that the Canadian pair and then the way the Russian pair like speak about each other reflects how they feel about the system, their government systems and, and that, you know, the political, the politics of each country in a way, actually, because um, Elena was like, you know, you just cry or get the media on your side and you kind of get everything you want in terms of, you know, in, in the West, it's a bit like, oh, you're all emotional and then you just throw your dummy out and get what you want. And, and you know, Jamie and David, while respectful of Anton and Elena, were a bit like, well, the Russians do whatever they do to win. It doesn't matter what. So mm. actually the way they spoke about each other on the one sense was very respectful as skaters. On another, reflected how they felt about Canada and Russia more broadly, I think. All the TV say French. Judge came everywhere say, listen, I fixed my marks. How? Who forced her to fix? Who? How it happened? Now, the heavy in this story may be a Russian mobster, uh, as you as you cover in the documentary. But do people actually think he was working alone? Yes, in this story, it wasn't just the Russians who were involved in the corruption. It was the French as well. And that's why it was so important to have David at the end saying, you know, the West is just as guilty as the East. Basically, what we're trying to say is... Corruption is possible in any country, anywhere, by anyone. And it's it's the money and the power that unfortunately corrupts. And that's the case in sport. And basically, that's what the whole series is about. Hmm. Now, Lizzie, you told me that when you started making this film, you didn't know a ton about figure skating, but now you do. So my final question for you is, do you think there's any chance this kind of score fixing in this sport could happen again? Gosh, that's a big question. That's a big question. But I think... There probably is, unfortunately, because of the subjectivity of the sport. Everybody involved in the sport and people are very passionate about trying to ensure that doesn't happen. They've tried to change the scoring system, then it went back. But it's about the subjectivity, so that makes it difficult, doesn't it? It's not like a basketball game where you know, or goals at football. Um, but it's the subjectivity and that artistic element that makes it so incredible to watch. And so exciting. So you don't want to take that away from it. So I think if we're going to enjoy it and have the excitement around it, unfortunately, there's, we're probably going to have to watch it knowing that, you know, people may not always vote in the most honest way, but just hope that they do. Well, your documentary is called Gold War, part of the series Bad Sport on Netflix. Lizzie Kempton, thank you so much for talking about it with me. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. 
That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Lizzie Kempton. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show and stay tuned for all new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.